friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, Ned Blackhawk's The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History, won the National Book Award. In this episode, we're thrilled to share a great discussion of Blackhawk's book, which explores five centuries of U.S. history to shed light on the central role indigenous peoples have played in shaping America. Ned Blackhawk, professor of history and American studies at Yale, is joined by Northrop professor of American studies at the University of Minnesota, Brenda Child. This program was streamed live on November 1st, 2023. It is a great honor to introduce our panel. We have two of America's greatest historians of Native Americans and American history here to teach us about the central contribution of that history from before the founding to today. Ned Blackhawk is the Howard R. Lamar Professor of History and American Studies at Yale, where he's faculty coordinator for the Yale Group for the Study of Native America. He's a member of the Tamok tribe of Western Shoshone Indians of Nevada. And we're here to discuss his path-breaking new book, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. This important work has won widespread acclaim as our generation's uh, leading account of uh, the role of Native people throughout U.S. history. It's a finalist for the National Book Award, and it's a great honor to host Professor Blackhawk. And here to discuss the book is another of America's greatest scholars of Native American history. Brenda Child is Northrop Professor of American Studies at the University of Minnesota, where she has chaired the Departments of American Studies and American Indian Studies. She is the author of several landmark books, including Boarding School Seasons, American Indian Families from 1900 to 1940, Holding Our World Together, and My Grandfather's Knocking Sticks. Her new book project is The Marriage Blanket, Love, Violence, and the Law in Indian Country. Welcome, Ned Blackhawk and Brenda Child. It is a great honor to host you. Ned Blackhawk, my goal in this discussion is just to put as much of the history that you discuss in your pathbreaking book on the table so that our audience can learn from it. I'm going to, there are many places we could begin, uh, but I'm going to pick the moment right before the American Revolution that you say marked the first American Revolution. And you tell the story of the Paxton Boys, a group of white settlers in Pennsylvania who rose up and rebelled against British officials uh, because they identified themselves as settlers. And this, combined with other uprising of of settlers uh, in the 1760s, you describe as the real beginning of the American Revolution. Tell us about that and then begin this crucial story of the central role of Native Americans in U.S. history from the revolution on up. I'm delighted to be here, Jeffrey. Thank you for that warm and generous introduction. Uh, It's a real honor to partner with your acclaimed institution this way, and I'm extremely delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Brenda Child, in this conversation. Um, You're pointing to um, one of the central features of the first half of this book that opens in the uh, aftermath of a cataclysmic global war known as the Seven Years' War, often referred to in American history as the French and Indian War. And uh, there have been 
many scholars who've written about uh, that conflict and its aftermath, uh, but none has sufficiently carried forward, I feel, some of the implications of these studies to reorient more broadly narratives of the American Revolution. And as we approach 2026 and get ready for the 250th anniversary of the birth of the Republic and the uh, proclamation of the Declaration itself, I think it's imperative that we look to this interior history and do so in part to see where the Declaration's anti-Indigenous ideologies originated. And it's not really well known, except in particular particularly Native American studies circles and in, within Native American communities themselves. Uh, but the culmination of the Declaration of Independence sits with the inhabitants of our frontier whose antagonists are not the crown itself, but, quote, merciless Indian savages whose known role of warfare is an indistinguished destruction of all. So that um, language and culminating concern animated the founders inherently, and most kind of conventional narratives of American history, political development, and um, kind of revolutionary formation have not really adequately um, assessed it. So in chapter five of this new book called Settler Uprisings, I kind of work through uh, a growing set of uh, studies in this field and make the kind of suggestions that you've identified, that there are, in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, a series of what I term settler uprisings that occur, particularly in Pennsylvania in 1763, 1764, and perhaps most least known in 1765, when further west from Lancaster, where the 1763 uprising first erupts in December, groups known as the Black Boys attack overland British convoys heading into the interior world of um, Eastern North America to supply and who, who are anticipating to supply uh, Native American confederations that have formed in the late stages and in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. We've heard of these wars episodically, but never in kind of larger contextual form. Um, but the summer of 1763 saw the outbreak of something known as Pontiac's War, which engendered such hostility and fear among settler communities in western Pennsylvania, about a thousand of whom were displaced because of the conflicts, that they brought with them sets of grievances, fears, and hatreds that ultimately found their way into the Declaration. Um, th that concern about frontier inhabitants that I just referenced from the Declaration itself is articulated in 1763 and 1764 by these settlers who are concerned that the British crown is enacting sets of appeasements with interior peoples. They're diplomatically recognizing them. They're uh, agreeing to offer trade goods in, um, in, in exchange for peace and other kind of provisions of recognition. And... This becomes a defining element of the revolutionary era. It's not the only cause of the revolution, but it predates the Stamp Act. Um, it is articulated in declara uh, declarations of grievances that they, these in, uh, individuals and their groups issue. They're condemned by people like Benjamin Franklin in famous publications in the 1764 
Um, and there is a series of conflicts, a civil, I wouldn't quite say war, but civil grievances that are violent at times um, around these issues throughout the 1760s. So that's where I locate what are what I call the indigenous origins of the American Revolution. And I hope uh, that chapter kind of frames the revolution in a kind of broader context and shows how, although Native peoples themselves were not at the table, so to speak, when the Declaration was drafted, concerns about them certainly were. And that's true of the Constitution as well in 1787, uh, which is chapter six of the book. And it's through, uh, it's, it's true throughout the aftermath of the early Republic. So that's the kind of central claim of those chapters. And it kind of hopefully reinforces the overall argument of the book that like uh, many, many scholars in the field upon whose work this work of synthetic interpretation is dependent, there is really no way one can understand the history of the United States outside of its indigenous context. Historians have done tried to do so for a very long time, uh, but ultimately have yet to offer um, a more inclusive and um, accurate uh, portrayal of North American history. And so this book, The Rediscovery of America, draws its title from a generation or more of scholars, Brenda and myself included, who have been trying to remedy the erasure and omission of Native Americans from narratives of American history. Uh, we've come a long way, and there have been a lot of kind of milestone achievements and developments along this path, uh, but there's still a lot more work to be done, and particularly outside of the academy, in more public and institutional spaces, perhaps such as your own. Thank you so much for that, and that remarkable invocation of the language of the Declaration itself, accusing the king of having induced uh, Native Americans to rise up against the frontier inhabitants, is one of the examples of how you transform our understanding of the Declaration and of the Constitution by reinstating the centrality of Native Americans in that story. Brenda Childs, tell us, first of all, about um, this broader effort that Ned Blackhoff describes to return in historiography the centrality of Native Americans to the American story. And then tell us about this remarkable period from the American Revolution through the Declaration to the Constitution, uh, culminating in the, in the constitutional efforts, as, as Ned Blackhawk says, to establish federal supremacy over uh, commerce and treaty authority with the tribes uh, at a time when the states are fighting for that uh, sovereignty. How does putting Native Americans back in the American story change our understanding of the period from the revolution to the constitution? That's a lot. Um, but I will say that, you know, I feel similarly to Ned in that a lot of us, you know, kind of struggled early in our careers as people who were pursuing doctorates in the field of um, American history, because we felt like we were left out of the narrative of American history. I remember, even though it was sort of an interesting time, I think, for myself to be in graduate school, there was a kind of new social history, women's history was coming um, into our departments and regarding it as a field. But I always remember when I took my comprehensive exams in grad school that I couldn't do a field in American Indian history because no one in my department thought it existed. 
And it's kind of stunning to think about how far we've come because we didn't teach a single course at my graduate institution, a Big Ten school in the Midwest. We didn't teach a single course on American Indian history. And so I think that, you know, it was my, I always felt very committed to um, including Native people, centering them in the narrative. And so people actually like um, Ned's advisor, Richard White, was a very influential person, I think, in our field at that time, who was really kind of encouraging this generation of scholars coming up to, to be more inclusive in Native history. For me, as someone who'd grown up in a Native uh, community in northern Minnesota, I'm Red Lake Ojibwe, I was also interested in questions um, not just of the American past, but also questions particularly to my own community and our history. And so that's sort of what I've tried to pursue as a scholar, um, as, as just these questions that, that in some ways came from within my community. For example, um, I wrote about Native people's experiences in government boarding schools for my first book. But that all started with my grandmother, who had been the first person to tell me about government boarding school. I'd never heard the word Carlisle until she spoke that word, right, where her dad had been one of the first people from our community um, to go away to government boarding school. And so that's been kind of the background to my historical career. Of course, we've also had not just with the growth of Native scholars working in the field, of Native history, we've been really enriched by conversations taking place in our field of Indigenous studies as well. And what we find increasingly is that these are kind of global conversations we're taking part in. But I know that when I read, like Ned's book, how struck I was with, you know, if we'd had a book like that years ago, it would have been an amazing thing. Or I was thinking, too, of Claudio Sant's good book, Unworthy Republic. I've always kind of um, been challenged when talking about um, Cherokee removal or the removal of the Southeastern tribes, and I never really found a text that kind of resonated. And then, um, you know, Claudio kind of turns things. So the Trail of Tears, which historians have always used that term, becomes now one of the first state-sponsored mass deportations in modern history. And so I think that's the other thing that scholars are trying to do. I think of Jeff Osler's work on genocide in early American history and throughout the history of the United States as well, that there were terms that we need to have a, a contemporary vocabulary to talk about the past. We can't just use tragedy the trail of tears and these sorts of ideas. We have to kind of get where the modern world is and look at his history that way and American Indian history. So what Ned's book shows, I think, is that history is continuously being um, revised. Our vocabulary is being updated. And so fortunately, you know, we probably won't be unemployed soon because our work is never really done in looking at that history. And I'm so glad, especially for those those early periods that Ned has done such a beautiful job of talking about it. Not that he doesn't do a good job with the 20th century, because I actually read the book in reverse. I started out with the 20th century, because that's the era that I work in. 
Thank you so much for that and for also the great uh, recommendations of, of other scholars uh, who can expand our understanding as well. Ned Blackhoff, uh, Brenda Child mentioned, of course, Indian removal and, and take us up from the story of the drafting of the Constitution through the Jacksonian period up to the Civil War. There's a lot going on there. You, you talk about how the Constitution gave the federal government uh, plenary authority over treaties. Uh, George, after George Washington had gone out to survey his own territories in the Ohio region and became convinced of the need to stop competing state efforts. And then, of course, you tell the story of the efforts by states such as Georgia to assert authority over Native Americans. You give Jay's Treaty as an example of an effort to exclude the British from those interior territories, which is such a central part of your story, those martial court decisions, and then taking us up to the eve of the Civil War. So a, a crucial part of the history, uh, take us up through it. Okay. Um, I, I think we might want to uh, strap in a little bit, but um, it's it's great <laughs> to kind of think through uh, these really big sweeping subjects in such a kind of uh, particularly focused and condensed form. The book is divided in half. The first six chapters uh, chronicle what is kind of commonly referred to as U.S. colonial history or the history of Native imperial relations in my um, telling. It's titled Indians and Empires, and it extends from the Spanish colonial period through uh, the formation of uh, British and French imperial worlds and then across the long 18th century uh, culminating with the drafting and ratification of the Constitution, which is Chapter Six, and so I'm I'm, I'm kind of uh, presuming that many of your audience members are interested in constitutional history um, in a particularly um, kind of essential or elemental way. So that chapter may help uh, kind of frame this subject a bit. Uh, maybe familiar to the specialists, but perhaps unfamiliar to others. Uh, it starts with the Articles and mentions how relatively weak and um, unsuccessful they are. I like uh, the, some of the language I used in that chapter about how the Articles um, of Confederation uh, uh, conscript, uh, constricted more than they confederated and, you know, kind of familiar weaknesses that uh, many in the field know, but many outside of it are never really taught. And so we're very rarely taught that the first government in the United States um, failed to govern effectively, um, though it survived the revolution and helped initiate the Treaty of Paris and some very important early statutes like the, nor old, uh, the or Northwest uh, Ordinance of 1787. So the Constitution then opens, uh, concludes the first half, and then the history of the early republic opens the second half of the book, which is essentially a kind of overview of federal Indian uh, relations and affairs in uh, kind of temporalized, uh, periodized uh, form. So the first chapter of that section, chapter seven, is on the early republic. Um, and I kind of forced myself to try to make sense of a lot of competing themes and kind of uh, debates and understandings in this subject matter. And I drew upon um, some uh, kind of uh, studies of the formation of American kind of racial legal categories. Um, one of Brenda's former colleagues named David Rodiger's work kind of really helped me think through um, how whiteness became kind of a legal category in the early Republic. Uh, it's not in the Constitution. But it's in the, one of the first laws Congress has passed is in the 1790, the Naturalization Act says that you have to be white, essentially, to become a naturalized citizen of the United States, um, something I never never was taught in American <laughs> graduate school or history. 
Um, and so this language of race is at the heart of the early republic's um, legal and kind of political discourses. And it's constructed not only obviously in, in, in relationship to African-American uh, struggles for uh, emancipation and freedom, but also interior and resident indigenous peoples. And that struggle is trilateral or multilateral rather than binary in the kind of conventional racial understanding of America. And so that chapter tries to bring indigenous history into a somewhat familiar tale of racial formation in the early republic. Like much of Native American history, it's not it's really a history of race in the way we think of it, but a history of politics and jurisdiction and sovereignty and authority. And so things like treaties, government actions, and also challenges between government or settler society um, become really imp- uh, central to these subjects. Like when the revolutionary era that had those civil divisions that we already gestured towards throughout the early republic, the federal government has this authority delegated to it in the Congress, in the constitution, but it's never really exercised it. And when it often exercises it, states resist it. And we're familiar with state resistance to federal initiatives on things like slavery and its expansion and the jurisdiction of the federal government over state governments, particularly in the South. But we're not that familiar with federal commitments to Indian affairs that the Southern states in particular are, run, are running roughshod over. So tribal leaders themselves struggle to make sense of how to survive in these rapidly changing times when the demography of um, the United States is changing so, so quickly. The revolution kind of unleashes a kind of deluge of settler settlements across the trans-Appalachian frontier that had already begun, but now it has a kind of, you know, a national power behind it. The land policies of the new government, the growing forms of state incorporation, the economic trading practices of the young republic, its diplomatic kind of commitments to England and then France, which ultimately yield the Louisiana Purchase. All of that is happening in an incredibly short period of time. And it's reaping dramatic kind of harrowing challenges for Native peoples. Over time, Native peoples come to see that they can use the U.S. legal system for their own benefits, or try to at least. And that's what happens in the Marshall cases, particularly in the 1831 and 1832 cases, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia and Worcester v. Georgia, which is the kind of leading or seminal case of American Indian, federal Indian law or constitutional law uh, formation. It's a little technical to kind of get into the details, but essentially the Cherokee Nation say to the federal government, look, your, your constitution says we are like foreign nations. Uh, state of Georgia can't have any jurisdiction over us. And Marshall, uh, Chief Justice Marshall in that case says, no, you're not a foreign nation. You're a domestic dependent nation, whatever that means. Um, you're thus under the jurisdiction of the federal government, but not uh, independent from it. But you're not under the jurisdiction of the state government, we learned the next year in the Worcester case, which involves a U.S. missionary. So can the state of Georgia enforce laws over Indian communities that affect U.S. citizens? Justice Marshall and the Supreme Court say, no, you can't. But Andrew Jackson says, yes, you can. And Andrew Jackson won't support the, the case, as we all know. And that leads to, as Brenda mentioned, the mass deportation of indigenous peoples from the South with essentially federal sanction. And not just sanction legally, but militarily. And Claudio's Sant's book, Unworthy Republic, shows that 40% of the entire U.S. 
uh, annual budget throughout many years in the 1830s was used to essentially pay for the removal of indigenous populations. Farmers along the way had to be compensated for the resources that Indian peoples were uh, consuming. Um, a ferry boat uh, and army f- uh, commanders needed payments for all of their work bringing these peoples west, uh, approximately 70,000 of whom were um, uh, forcibly removed from eastern North America throughout this area, both the north and the south. So those are the kind of general uh, contours of this um, often, as Brenda was suggesting, somewhat simplified narrative of removal. Um, It's really one of contestation, struggle, federal uh, dominion, and then a state assertions that uh, have not been sufficiently kind of told. Remarkable. Thank you so much for for sharing all that in such a powerful way. You, you started with that really startling revelation that you have, you have to be white to be a citizen of the United States. And as you note in the book, Thomas Jefferson, you know, having exalted the declaration after the Louisiana Purchase, supports a conception of citizenship that, that's racialized, that's limited to whites and also betrays his strict construction principles uh, as an executive. And then you note this tension, whereas despite the martial court's nationalism, uh, the, the, the federal government resists, as you said, and, and, and Jackson institutes the mass deportation. Brenda, what context can you shed on this crucial period? It's such a striking statistic that 40% of the U.S. annual budget was spent on Indian removal. But how was it that Jacksonian political resistance to the Marshall Court led to this mass deportation. What was the intersection between the Supreme Court and the executive branch during this period? And how did the legal status of uh, Native Americans change uh, between the founding and the Civil War? Yeah, so I'm someone who works, like I say, on some of these same issues, but for a slightly later period of time. And one of the things I always like to tell my students who seem to be very surprised at this news, um, that my grandparents were not citizens of the United States, right? So these issues of, of citizenship and Indian removal, we have all these, um, these are continuing stories that plague Native people into the later part of the 19th century and even into the 20th century. My own grandfather, for example, was removed from central Minnesota in the early 20th century when they were trying to kind of force Ojibwe people out of that region of the country. And so I like to kind of call him a political refugee because we don't really think of Native people as having a status, anything like that. But he was forced out of his homeland and then he was moved to a reservation, White Earth, with his uh, his immediate family, his brothers and his father, and they kind of had to create a new life for themselves. And even though that was only 150 miles away from where he was dispossessed originally, it's still a big deal, you know, especially how, you know, when you think of movement and the circulation of people at that time, that was such a big deal. So this is what Native people are faced with, you know, the continual kind of threats of dispossession, uh, removal. This is what our leaders are dealing with in our communities. And I think back to my own community, this Ojibwe community way up in uh, northern Minnesota in the year, you know, here where I am today in Minneapolis, St. Paul, I teach at the University of Minnesota 
you know, we're, we're here in this location because of we're at the confluence of the Mississippi and the Minnesota rivers. And I always tell students, this is why the big real estate boom happened right here, right? This is the big one of the big geographic centers here in the Great Lakes. But very soon after settlers began moving into Minnesota and there was a huge demographic shift in a short period of time, there was a big war almost immediately, you know, and a lot of what Ned's book is about, even though I think it's a great book and in the end, very optimistic, there's a lot of violence throughout this, you know, throughout this history. And in Minnesota, we like to think of ourselves as nice Midwestern people, you know, and so forth. But I say it was really Minnesota's founded on one of the, the bloodiest Indian wars in the history of our country. Uh, in 1862, we had the largest mass execution in the history of the United States when Dakota people were, Dakota men were hanged in the aftermath of this war. So that's 1862. And so here my tribe is up in northern Minnesota and you think, oh, we're out in the, you know, we're out in the forests and harvesting wild rice and life is still good, except you know, we didn't have news, the internet, but we knew what was going on in southern Minnesota. We didn't want the same things that were happening to Dakota people to happen to our people in northern Minnesota. And so our leaders made very difficult decisions in the aftermath of the Dakota War. So in 1863, my tribe negotiated their only treaty with the United States. And I always ask members of our community to think about how tied Dakota and Ojibwe history is here in the upper Midwest, because we have to make political decisions based on what is happening to Dakota people who seem to be in the middle of this big real estate boom. And so our leaders got busy and negotiated in 1863 and signed a treaty with the United States. And I was watching, um, you know, like many of you, the Ken Burns documentary on the Buffalo um, a couple of weeks ago. And we ceded to the United States land west of us that was actually in the Red River Valley that was thousands of acres of prime um, agricultural land and buffalo country. And even though we kind of think of ourselves in northern Minnesota as being um, fishermen and people who live in the lakes and woods, that was our territory as well. We, our communities lived and hunted and get, and gathered and um, practiced farming in that era, in that area. And so imagine what motivated people in 1863, our leaders, we had hereditary chiefs, what motivated them to make a gigantic land session to the United States. And so this is what tribes are faced with in the 19th century, right? During the treaty era, it's very personal. It's, it's all about your economy. It's about your survival. And one of the things that I find most moving when I read um, the documentation and the wording of those treaty negotiations is that our hereditary chiefs I can, I want to cry every time I say it. They were thinking about us. They were thinking of future generations. And they always referenced their children's children, their children's grandchildren. And so they were trying to imagine a future 
as they negotiated treaties with the United States that included us, you know, future generations, that we would still have an identity as Ojibwe people. We would still have our sovereignty. We would still have our ways of life. And that's what's, to me, deeply impressive. So the United States is a really big force to contend with for our tribal leaders, but they made the best decisions they could in a very disadvantaged world in which they were now living. And that's what I kind of think a lot about um, when I consider kind of the treaty era of the 19th century, how tribe after tribe, tribal nation after tribal nation is forced to make these impossible decisions for the well-being and the futures of their people. So powerful. Uh, thank you so much for sharing both the story of your own ancestors and uh, putting it in that remarkable context. Ned, Ned Blackhawk, you, you, you've helped us understand the contribution of the Native American struggle to the struggle over citizenship. I, I, I just checked out uh, Chief Justice Taney's infamous decision in the Dred Scott decision, and he cites that uh, position of Jefferson that you noted that um, Native Americans couldn't be citizens to support his claim that black people have no rights that white people have to respect. He says, in their untutored and savage state, no one would have thought of admitting them as citizens in a civilized community. And it just reinforces your point about the racialized nature of this debate over citizenship. You then remind us of some jarring facts about the Civil War, in particular that uh, some uh, Native tribes sided with the South and themselves owned slaves. So it was not a pretty story. Tell us about, take us from the story, you know, from the Civil War up through the beginning of the 20th century. There's a tremendous amount going on there. What, what happens after the war? Uh, how, how does uh, Native American status change during a time when there's still no uh, national citizenship for Native Americans, despite the 14th Amendment's passage for African Americans? And then the crucial battles, of course, uh, of, the, of the 19th uh, century. The Civil War era, if we conceive it as not truncated by the immediate or um, exclusive uh, conflicts between the Confederacy and the Union Army, um, is a much longer kind of military and political struggle. The Civil War era is also a conflict for supremacy over much of the continent. In both the Confederate and Union leaders understood that the West would become a primary, not only terrain for the war itself, but also a potential kind of prize for whichever uh, nation uh, most appropriately uh, seized it. And so it's not incoincidental that Jefferson Davis had been uh, uh, working within uh, the, uh, the Trans-Mississippi Survey Departments when he was in uh, the federal government uh, before the war, um, envisioning potential railway, railway routes across the southern portions of the American Southwest. Um, it's not incoincidental that uh, Confederate leaders kind of forced, as you were referencing, tribal nations in Oklahoma to uh, surrender their loyalty to the federal government, many of whom were willing to do so because, you know, after being forcibly deported from the South, um, their experiences <laughs> at the hands of the American government weren't generally that uh, favorably remembered. Um, and the kind of central, I think, 
takeaway one might want to um, really kind of marinate on is that the United States in 1860 was a far different place than it became by the end of the war, the conflict between the North and the South in 1865. Much more so than the difference between 1850 and 1856 or 1840 and 1846. Um, The differences that came to the Union during the Civil War were seismic and transformative in ways that we may have been taught, but never fully, I think, registered or comprehended. And I'm not saying that I comprehend and register them, but I think we as a national community need to do more to do so. The infrastructure of the federal government, the size of the federal government, the power of the federal government, the uh, reach of the federal government, none of the, the features we think of as the kind of national government really existed in 1860. Um, and I think I have some lines drawn from historians of the Civil War era that say things like, uh, most American citizens may not have ever seen a representative of the federal government in their lifetimes, which kind of highlights the kind of rural, um, kind of unincorporated, kind of localized nature of life within not indigenous, but non-indigenous American communities, potentially a single postmaster, um, uh, the Union Army was 20,000 strong in 1850. Um, you know, it's into the nearly a million uh, soldiers, um, um, both black and white, uh, will serve on behalf of the Union Army th- during this conflict. So the, the nation goes through this just extraordinary transformation. Indian affairs are central to multiple dimensions of the Civil War theaters. The last Confederate general to surrender is a Cherokee general, Stan Wadey. Uh, I write somewhat provocatively that the militia, militia campaigns that have already been conducted in California during the 1850s start receiving federal funding during the early years after um, Fort Sumner and the kind of growing Confederate nationalist uh, secessionist process. They uh, start The state militias in California start receiving federal funds to campaign against Native peoples. I I don't ask this as a question, but I make it a suggestion that these then become the first casualties of the Civil War. Um, People getting money by the federal government uh, uh, and um, various kind of um, uh, federal kind of incentives to uh, campaign um, in Northern California are uh, participants in some form in this larger continental struggle. So uh, the Dakota War of 1862 is, um, is a horrific form of ethnic cleansing that occurs across the Minnesota River. It's followed very quickly by the Bear River Massacre in early January in 1863 um, in northern Utah. The people who are at Bear River include a, a lieutenant commander by the name of Edward Patrick Connor. He's from California. He's marched east from California with federal troops uh, to kind of subdue and subject, subordinate indigenous peoples all across uh, the Great Basin and into Utah. Uh, this is followed shortly thereafter by the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado and the forced removal of Navajo peoples from uh, the Four Corners region um, to uh, east of the Rio Grande to a place called Bosque Redondo. There are these just kind of large-scale military initiatives and campaigns to subordinate, remove, and sometimes massacre Native peoples during the war. None of that would have been possible without the war effort and mobilization uh, beforehand. Um, and so that kind of military frame 
of kind of Indian, Indian-U.S. relations continues after the war, when military officials like General Sherman or uh, Pope and others become uh, major treaty um, diplomats among Indian uh, in Indian affairs. Um, Grant institutes something called a peace policy um, in the aftermath of the war that tries to bring kind of stability to this deeply um, fractured nation. However, and this is kind of answer to your long long answer to your question. At the same time that the federal government is trying to resolve conflicts among the Lakota, resolve, which, which culminates in the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868, resolve conflicts among the Comanche and, and Kiowa, which culminates in the Treaty of Medicine Lodge in 1867, resolve all these tensions throughout the post-war era, the Congress has now gotten all the power um, it kind of has ever wanted. Uh, the South is gone as representatives to the government initially uh, during Reconstruction, um, and Congress starts doing things that it hasn't really had the power to do in almost a century. Uh, they haven't touched the Constitution since 1802 or 1803 with the 12th Amendment. Now they offer three amendments in five years, uh, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. You mentioned the 14th Amendment. It doesn't include Indians. Uh, historians have kind of failed to see what that means, really. Um, Eric Foner, our colleague and uh, my co-author in one project I worked with him on, uh, calls the second founding, uh, uh, the 14th Amendment, um, it includes virtually everyone, he writes, in North America. Well, not the indigenous peoples of America. Um, so what does it mean that Native peoples are not included in the 14th Amendment? They're not included in the Civil Rights Act of 1866 either. So Congress is giving itself all this power, but not resolving this other problem, essentially, for the nation. Meanwhile, the federal government is trying to institute treaties and resolve conflicts with powerful equestrian peoples. Congress starts eroding all of those federal commitments, or many of them, over the next many decades. Reservations are established, like for the Lakota in 1868, the Great Sioux Reservation. It's cobbled down. Um, tribes are granted authority and provisions. They're taken away. Over time, this problem becomes one where railway interests, Western settlers, and others want Indian lands and resources, and Congress will help them do so. And so various land policies in particular will alienate um, treaty lands and lead to the growing assimilative designs of the federal government to incorporate indigenous peoples, not as Indians, but as individuals into the body politic of America. So citizenship, Christianity, English language usage, domestic habits, uh, all these kind of normative assumptions about what constitutes kind of an Americanization program or an, Amer an idealized American subject become imposed upon Native Americans. This is where Brenda's work and, you know, and uh, has really kind of helped explore what that means on an individual and kind of community basis. People are taken from their families and sent to federal-run schools. That doesn't sound like liberty to me, but that's how kind of uh, <laughs> Native Americans often appear in these subject matters. So, that's a kind of general contours. There's lots of kind of detailed legal elements along that way, kind of Supreme Court cases that authorize Congress to have this kind of plenary power that you mentioned. But none of this was the in the minds of the founders. Um, none of this was in the minds of the treaty makers, both Indian and non-Indian, who negotiated these historic agreements. Uh, the treaties are supposed to be the supreme law of the land, according to the Constitution, um, but they've been violated repeatedly for Native nations. 
without often much just or compensatory um, action. So it's not, as, as Brenda was saying, it's not really an optimistic story for most of the narrative, but it gets there at the end. And if we have a little bit of time, maybe we can sketch some of that uh, before concluding. That would be great. Well, we will hope to end on a note of greater optimism, but this is not a happy period, as you say. And just that stark fact that the 14th Amendment grants citizenship to uh, African-Americans, to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, excluding Indians not taxed, that infamous language. And it's not until, as you know, 1924 and the American Indian Citizenship Act that Congress ends the 137-year history of excluding Native Americans from citizenship. And during, in the meantime, in that time, from uh, after the Civil War until 1924, there is this stark policy during what you call the reservation era, which subverts treaties, which uh, uses Congress's new power to divide reservation lands and creates this phenomenon that Brenda has written so powerfully about, about these boarding schools, which remove Native American children from their homes in this system of forced assimilation. Brenda, please share with us this dark period that you've written so powerfully about when Congress is using its power to brutally assimilate Native Americans. Well, I think that it's not really a well-known story in the United States, perhaps until the last couple of years when there has been more focus on um, the history of the Canadian residential schools, that we had a similar uh, kind of policy in the United States. And I like how Ned has written about this in uh, The Rediscovery of America also, because he's always um, very careful to connect this to the big picture of what's going on. So there's a, you know, with my work, I've tried to talk about individual people, what happened to students, the hardships and the deaths of students. But there's also a bigger picture because you have to remember that the boarding school era, you know, if you think of Carlisle as being the first of these institutions founded in 1879, this is still the Indian Wars are taking place. Some of the first children at Carlisle were the, um, were the children and the young people from the incarcerated Apache uh, people who were imprisoned in Fort Marion in Florida, you know, in St. Augustine. And then also the children were coming in from the Northern Plains who were involved, their families were involved in military conflict against the United States. And this is, I think, one of the points Jeff Osler makes in his book about genocide is we have to remember that these are not just send us your best fighting forces and we'll bring our cavalry. These are wars upon families and communities. And so I think a lot of parents saw boarding schools initially as maybe safe destinations for their children during this time of heavy military conflict um, with Indian tribes in the United States. So let's keep in mind that the boarding school came out of this time of uh, removal of um, military conflict with Indian tribes. And the first schools like Carlisle were old army barracks. The kids always talked about wearing um, uniforms at school. And in fact, many of them in the 20th century, even before widespread citizenship in 1924, many of those kids went off to the World War I. You know, they said, some of them said it was easier to go into the military than boarding school, but they were already in uniform. 
But the point that I think Ned makes and that I always like to mention when I talk to audiences today about boarding school history is that we have to remember that the alienation from land continued throughout this 50-year period that boarding school history dominated Indian education in the United States. Like Ned, I kind of look at these policies declining in the 1930s under FDR. But during that half century when boarding schools dominated Indian education, it was still a big land grab in the post-allotment era. And so Indian people lost 90 million acres of land during that half century of boarding school history and education in the United States. So I never want to look at these policies as apart from one another. They went hand in hand, the General Allotment Act of 1887 and the the boarding school program. So it's another plan for dispossessing Indians. Not only is it cultural assimilation, but it's also the message. You don't really need your homeland anymore. You know, you're, as Ned says, you're going to become a citizen of the United States and enter and not really be a tribal person anymore. That's not what Native people saw as their future, but that was what boarding school education was all about. But we have to never forget that 90 million acres that were lost. So these, this is even after the treaty era, right? This is the post-allotment era of the late 19th and the early 20th century. Thank you so much for that. Well, it is indeed time for closing thoughts. We, we got up to the dawn of the 20th century, and Ned, there's so much to, to say, but in, in reflecting on the 20th century, which you describe in your final two chapters, there are grounds for hope. You talk about Supreme Court cases, including the United States Santa Fe Railroad case in 1941, the, the first uh, significant ruling in favor of native land rights and um, other uh, landmarks in the transition from what you call the uh, movement from termination to self-determination. So you've done a magnificent job in distilling the essence of these central periods as you reflect on the evolution of Native American rights and citizenship in the 20th century. What are the highlights and can you leave us with any grounds for optimism and hope? Many of us wouldn't do the work we do if we didn't have uh, faith and um, hope and optimistic um, um, sensibility. So um, it is, though, a very uh, sobering subject um, that includes, particularly within Native communities and families, uh, often um, very difficult kind of personal um, legacies of various kinds. Um, And... um, I try to take inspiration from the strategies of survival that other indigenous peoples have initiated. And I, you see some of that in the early 20th century, uh, which is in chapter 11. Um, and if you just kind of think about what those individuals and organizations were trying to deal with a group like the society of American Indians, they confronted this kind of um, just, uh, you know, heavy loaded sandwich of, of challenges that uh, were being spoon-fed to them in all kinds of ways. Um, Land loss, uh, forced removal of children, economic uh, marginalization, uh, political. um, It's just on and on, litanies of kind of uh, forms of subordination. But they found strategies of survival and activism and advocacy 
Those continued throughout the 20th century. They led to legislative new uh, congressional laws. And many of them have uh, endured uh, throughout the late 20th and into the 21st century, making our kind of contemporary era one of particularly uh, kind of important um, uh, sovereign expressions and recognitions. These, however, are often challenged by uh, concentrated interests that either don't know these histories and um, tribal experiences or really don't care about them. And so we're all Native American communities and leaders and advocates are always and allies are always standing kind of guard against the next potential threatening law or policy or form of expansion that could conceivably erode the really hard fought gains of the last half century. And I, I chronicle some of those in the 70 and the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, particularly highlighting the capacity of tribes in the Northwest and the Great Lakes um, in places like California and Florida to explore and enact certain sovereign expressions, whether they be over treaty rights in the Northwest or they be over regained lost lands and sovereign authority in the Midwest or over economic development initiatives in California and Florida. These tribes have become really for the first time in American history, at least since the formation of the United States or within the United States, you know, viable national communities who can uh, protect themselves um, when needed against exterior intrusions. That was not always the case, as this history shows, but hopefully that may be much of the future. Beautifully said. Uh, Brenda Childs, uh, last word in this in this wonderful and significant discussion is to yeah. you, uh, what uh, would you like to say about the evolution of the status of Native American citizenship in the 20th century and are there any grounds of optimism that you'd like to leave us on? You know, I am such an optimistic person that it's it's like a it's it's it, I'm too optimistic sometimes. But I also think that that Ned's you know, as, as I was saying, I think that Ned's book is ultimately an optimistic one, and I'm very glad that he has written a book that is comprehensive. I think it's a kind of a masterful book and. One of the things that I notice over the years is that we we used to always blame historians. You know, we're not doing a good job in the classrooms or, you know, I used to, when I, early in my teaching career, I used to hear a lot from students who said that they had never learned a certain history. We had never learned the narrative of American Indian history. I'd never learned about boarding schools. I'd never learned about the Dakota War and such. I don't hear that as much from uh from my students as I used to. But I but I always think now we need to quit blaming historians for our shortcomings, especially when all of this trickles down into the classroom. Because I like to tell people these days that we're kind of living in a golden age when it comes to the writing of American Indian history, right? I was mentioning several books today, Jeff Osler's book on genocide, Claudio Sant on removal, Mike, Michael Wicken, our colleague's uh, book on, called Seeing Red. And Ned's book is going to become a classic, you know, because this is just really a wonderful time to be working in the field of American Indian history. Bravo. Ned's book is indeed going to become a classic, um, like your works and like the works that you've just recommended. Dear National Constitution Center friends, thank you so much for taking an hour in the middle of your day to learn about 
American history in all of its challenges and complexities. And your homework assignment is the obvious one. Read Ned Blackhawk's book. You will learn so much. And by taking the time to educate yourself about American history and all of its complexity, you will learn and grow and be better able to create a more perfect union in the future. Uh, Ned Blackhawk, congratulations to you for, for this, this path-breaking contribution to our understanding of America. Thank you, Brenda Child, for your significant and remarkable contributions. It was an honor to host this conversation and uh, we'll look forward to convening soon. Thanks to all. Thank you. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Tanea Tauber, and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team. Research was provided by Samson Mastashari, Cooper Smith, Thomas Vallejo, and Yara Durese. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That's the live feed of all of our great town hall programs. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.